Well, good morning, all. It's such a privilege to be here in God's house among his people this morning. And I trust that uh, you've sensed, as I have, that already we've been in church, in the music, in your voices, in the prayers. God has been here and met us already. In fact, that last song that we sang, um, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice. You know how that came into the life of the church? Through a children's musical, way back when, when my youngest son was elementary age. And I remember the year that that was our theme song at children's camp. And if you can imagine the sound of a group of children, hundred or so, more than that maybe, singing together from the depths of their being, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice. I know God heard and smiled, and I trust that uh, he smiled today as he heard us singing from our hearts to him. Well, it's my privilege to uh, talk to you today about God's love. I've titled this sermon, Drawn by Chords of Love. This summer, I spent a week in Ireland, my first time ever to visit the Emerald Isle, when it was just as beautiful as everyone had told me it would be. And after a week of busy sightseeing, as we drove into the Dublin airport for our flight home, I was taken aback, really surprised, to catch out of the corner of my eye on a tower right in the middle of the airport parking lot, these words, God is love. I literally did a second take. As the bus went by and around the other side of the tower, I looked back, and sure enough, as plain as day, those words were inscribed for all to see. God is love. I was amazed, and I wondered how they came to be there. Well, in the busyness of coming home and getting settled, etc., etc., I sort of forgot about it for a while. But then I remembered, and the question arose again. How did these words come to be in this so very public space, a place where they would seen by literally thousands of people every day, 27 million in a year, I'm told. So I did a little research and discovered that the tower is not in the parking lot, as I thought it was, but it's actually on a Catholic church that is built right into the airport complex. And according to the parish website, the church was built in 1964 at the inspiration of airport workers and members of the local community. Its doors have been open ever since as a place of faith and welcome to everyone who comes to the airport. Airport workers, airline crews, and passengers from all over the world 
as well as members of our local community. God is love. Do you believe that this morning? I hear a lot of affirming yeses. Do you really believe it deep down in the center of your being? I hope you do. But what does it really mean that God is love? That word love is so overused and abused in our day that it can mean almost anything, and all too often it means nothing at all. On a human level, when we speak of love or think of love, it's usually associated with feelings in some way. Even the dictionary definition confirms this. Love is defined as a deep affection for a friend or family member or a romantic or sexual attachment to someone, or simply to like or enjoy doing something. But when we say that God is love, we are speaking of something that goes far beyond feelings. We are talking about the character of God. Love is his nature. It is the very essence of his being. And everything God does is an expression of who he is. In other words, God loves us because he is love. Did you hear anything to do with feelings in that definition of God's love? Absolutely none. Absolutely none. Well, let's look at the, at the word today and see what we can learn about God's love, what it means, truly means that God is love. First of all, we learn that God is constant. God's love is constant. When we begin to read the Bible, if we were to begin at the beginning, as most people do when they just re- open a book and begin to read, we would discover That in the beginning, God created the world and all that is in it. And then he created mankind in his own image. Scripture affirms from Genesis right through to Revelation that God is a God of love who loves the people that he created. That means, friends, he loves you, and he loves me. Even though they continually turned away from him and followed other gods. Now, if you focus on the Old Testament, you could even see God as a jealous or vengeful God. Some of the stories that we read in the Old Testament are pretty hard to stomach or understand, aren't they? But on further examination, we will find that even his punishments are meted out as an expression of his love. He commanded his people to obey him so that he could pour out his blessings upon them. He said, I love you. I don't want anything bad to happen to you. And if you do these things, if you turn away from me and if you follow other gods, It's only going to lead to death and destruction. And God wanted to save his people from that. 
we can identify with that, can't we, as parents? <laughs> if we're parents, we know that uh, we, when our children are young, we teach them, we train them, we tell them what we want them to do and what not to do, etc. Why? Because we want to control them? No. Because we want them to be safe. We want to keep them close to us because nobody loves them like we do. But most of all, our goal is that they will grow up to be healthy, productive adults who know and love God and are able to live as God's people in this world. Even non-Christian parents who don't have this sense of God's love and purpose want their children to grow up to be healthy and productive citizens. Well, as we know that God's people throughout the Old Testament continued to turn away from him, no matter how many times he showed his love to them, they would turn away, go their own ways, seek after other gods, and yet, as many times as they failed, God continually reached out in love to bring them back to himself. Last week, Pastor Shirley spoke about the prophet Hosea, whose life was a living parable of God's redeeming love in the face of who? Uh, in the face of the unfaithfulness of the wife he had married at God's command. Hosea married a prostitute and continued to love her even when she was unfaithful. By his love and faithfulness, he pictured, he gave people a living picture of God's love for them. Later on, we, hundred years or so later, we come to the prophet Jeremiah, who preached to the Israelites, the northern or the southern kingdom, rather, in the last in their very last years. We know him as the weeping prophet because he, of the great personal distress he experienced at the continual sin and apostasy of God's people. And yet, even when the destruction of Jerusalem was imminent, he gave this message of hope rooted in God's love. He said, The Lord appeared to us in the past, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. In other words, Jeremiah wanted the people to look back at their, the history of God's people. Every time they went astray, God redeemed them, called them back to himself in love. And so he went on to prophesy that there would come a day when God would redeem his people once again and they would live in peace and abundance in their own land. He goes on to say, I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. I will satisfy the priests with abundance, and my people will be filled with my bounty, declares the Lord. Now, you might be tempted to say, well, it's ancient history. We're a long way from 585 B.C., aren't we? 
and Babylonians for that matter. What's that got to do with me in 21st century America? Well, as I look around some 2,500 years later, I have to say, as people, we're much the same, aren't we? And God certainly is still the same. He still calls us to love and worship him. And all too often, we still follow after other gods, though we may call them by different names these days. God's love is constant. Another thing about our day is that we recognize that love is a basic human need. We need to love and be loved. Why? Really should come as no surprise. It's because we are made in God's image. Imperfect as we are as humans, we still bear his image to some degree. So it's no, it should come as no surprise that love is a basic need. Um, psychologists, uh, psychiatrists recognize this. They recognize that if a child, a baby, does not experience love in its earliest days, if, it does, if that child does not attach to a, a parent or a parent figure who loves and cares for that child, the child will grow up emotionally deficient, unable to receive and express love in a healthy way. We cannot be emotionally healthy adults if we are deprived of love, human love, in our childhood, and especially in the earliest years. Whoops, am I not? Uh-oh. Sorry about that. Ooh. Should I turn this one off? Okay, all right. All right. Yes, we are made in God's image, and so we are made to love and to experience love. Okay. And then we learn that God's love is unconditional. In my own spiritual journey, I've learned more about, being, about God's love by being a parent. Now, I understand that that's not going to be true for everyone. And to those of you who have not experienced the love of God through a parent or by being a parent, for whatever reason, I trust that you will experience God's smile upon your life and that you will allow him to make up for you, what has been lost, that sense of loss you feel. God is the great healer. In the psalm that uh, Pastor Mary read this morning, she read these verses, or mentioned these verses from uh, Psalm 27. That, 
excuse me. <laughs> the, she did not read these words, but they come later in the psalm that she mentioned in her prayer. It was David who wrote this psalm, and he was talking about the troubles that beset him on every side, and he started out saying that uh, he would not fear whatever befell him because he knew the Lord would was there with him, and the Lord was his light, his salvation, and everything. And then he goes on to say, and even when my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will take me up. Well, for me, it certainly has been true that being a parent and experiencing the love of a parent has taught me about the depths of God's love. My sister Karen and I have been doing family research for some time, and in the course of our research, we have been introduced online to a young woman who is related to us through my mother's side of the family, through her father's side. It's been a delight to get to know her. She's young, talented, artistic. And we had hoped, looked forward to meeting her the next time she came back to Canada to visit family. She lives in Germany with her husband now. Then COVID happened, so we have yet to meet her in person. But this year she had her first child, a boy, and she's documented her journey into motherhood and her son's progress from his earliest days on Facebook. And in the pictures she posts, her love for her son and her joy at being his mother simply radiate from her. Not surprisingly, as the baby has grown older, he's almost always smiling in those pictures too. And looking at those pictures, I have thought, how fortunate this child is to be so loved and to have a mother who loves being his mother. Oh boy, that's a lesson I wish I had learned back when I had my children. <laughs> I loved my children, absolutely loved them. But I cannot honestly tell you I enjoyed being their mother or a mother in the earliest days. I took the responsibility very seriously. I did my best, but it was not something that I enjoyed as this young mother does. She is a picture of God's love for us. This is how he loves us. I'm close to some children who lost their mother at much too young an age. There are three of them in this family, a little girl and two boys. And in the earliest days of their loss, they talked often about her. And the little girl especially has continued to talk about her mother and yearn for her. She feels the loss deeply, even though they are surrounded by other people that love them. And I pray that God will make up the difference in their lives. Another little girl I knew, 
who lost her mother much too young, wrote in her diary, My mother died this year. I miss her special smile. Friends, God smiles at you. He loves you. He is the one who gives us that special smile that lets us know we are precious in his sight. There is just no one in God's lives like me, like you. And though he loves us all, it's as individual as that. Another anecdote about parental love. This one a little more difficult. I have a friend who lost her adult son just a few months ago. He was her only child, and she lost him to a drug overdose. There are some among us who have known that kind of loss. God himself knows that kind of loss. But my friend has been posting pictures of him and memories of him on Facebook as a way of working through her own grief. She initially did it privately, and now she's sharing it, sharing his pictures, sharing her thoughts and her feelings. She wants people to know Eric as a whole person, not just as someone who struggled with pain, disability, and addiction. In a recent post, she wrote this. There was a stone in my garden when I moved here, and I remember showing it to Eric several times. Now, they moved to that particular place after he was an adult and struggling. It is inscribed with these words, Child, absolutely nothing you can do can destroy my love for you. Love God. That's exactly how I felt, too, about my love for him. And he knew it. And I know God feels the same way about us, all of his children. I was amazed when I read that post, amazed at the wisdom and insight she had as a parent to show her son that plaque and read it to him, not once, but several times. And later in conversation, she told me they talked about it. But that she would have the insight in the midst of her grief, which is still very raw and deep, that she knows God feels the same way about us. And if we learn anything from these, uh, from God's way of dealing with us, and from these anecdotes about parental love, we learn that God's love is unconditional. It has nothing to do with who we are or what kind of a person we are. It's the relationship that matters. God loves us because he made us. He loves us because he is love. 
And this metaphor of parental love is carried out in scripture. Listen to these words from some of the Old Testament prophets. Is not Ephraim my dear son, the child in whom I delight? Though I often speak against him, I still remember him. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion for him, declares the Lord. And this from the Psalms. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. And from Hosea, the prophet that Pastor Shirley spoke to us about last week, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them in my arms. But they never realized that it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them." What a beautiful word picture of God's unconditional love for us. I hope you are hearing God's heart speaking to your heart. He's saying, child, I love you. And absolutely nothing you can do, nothing you do, nothing can destroy my love for you. Well, let's move on to the New Testament. And in the New Testament, we have the story of Jesus, God's ultimate expression of love. In Jesus, we see God's self-sacrificing love personified. He willingly gave his own life for our sins so that we might have eternal life, not only in the hereafter, but right here on earth. He has made a way for us to share in the love and joy and oneness that he shares with God the Father. But I want us to look beyond, beyond Christ's gift of salvation, which is his ultimate gift to us, to how Jesus practically lived out that love. How did he demonstrate God's love in his day-to-day life? Remember, though he was God, he was fully man. Scripture confirms that he experienced life as we did. The ups, the downs, the good, the bad, the temptations, and yet without sin. So let's think of Jesus for a moment as he called his disciples. It was Peter, the big fisherman, who spoke first and thought second. (laughs) James and John, who were nicknamed the Sons of Thunder, I wonder what that says about their personalities. Matthew, the despised tax collector. Even Judas Iscariot, the thief who would betray him. Now, it wasn't because Jesus 
didn't know what was going to happen. Jesus knew. He said, I know what's in a man. I don't need anybody to tell me how people are. Friends, this is, this is the uh, psalm that Mary read this morning. God knows us. He knows who we are. He created us. He's known us since we were in the womb. He knows our thoughts. He knows our temptations. He knows our motivations, not just our actions, but all those inner things that we can hide from other people, sometimes even from our own selves. But God already knows them. He knows us intimately, and yet he loves us. And Jesus demonstrated this by choosing as his followers what would seem to us very ordinary, and flawed people. He knew who they were, but he called them anyway. Think of Jesus and his encounters with women. Now, in Jesus' day, women were definitely second-class citizens. By law, (laughs) they were looked upon as property. They had no rights of ownership, even. Jesus was different in his approach to women than the other men of his day. Think of the Samaritan woman at the well, the the despised foreigner or half-breed, the woman who had had five husbands and was now living with someone who wasn't her husband. Jesus knew, but he showed her the way to the water of life. Think of the woman taken in adultery. The men around her condemned her, thought they'd catch Jesus in a no-win situation. But Jesus sent them scurrying away, and he did not condemn her. He said, neither do I condemn you. But he also said, go and sin no more. He gave her a path to freedom from sin. Think of Mary Magdalene, possessed of seven demons. He set her free, set her free to love and worship him as a whole person. All of these were outcasts, but Jesus forgave, healed, delivered, and pointed the way to new life in God. Think of Jesus and his encounters with men as individuals. There was the rich young ruler, Nicodemus, Zacchaeus, and others. Jesus didn't have a script that he read from. Now, in essence, Jesus' message was the same for everyone. God loves you. He wants to know you. He wants you to follow him. But the specifics of how that love was to be played out and how they were to love God in return were different for each of them according to who they were. Jesus knew them as individuals. The rich young ruler, he said, sell everything you have and follow me. Now, as far as we know, 
That's the only person Jesus told to sell everything. To Nicodemus, he said, you must be born again. As he tried to explain to Nicodemus the difference between knowing God up here and having a heart to know God, a new heart. To Zacchaeus, he said, I'm coming to your house to eat with you. In other words, you may be an outcast to your fellow Jews, but you're not outcast to me. I want to fellowship with you. And Zacchaeus' love, or Zacchaeus' life rather, was transformed. Jesus drew people to himself with cords of love. Now there's another theme that runs through all of Scripture as we think about God's love for us. And that is, God approaches us or bestows on us both love and freedom. What I mean is that God created us to love us, to share his life, and to have fellowship with him. But he doesn't mandate it. He created us with the freedom to choose. I cannot emphasize how important that is. God could have created us as robots so that we would just automatically love him. But what kind of love would that be? What kind of love would that be? Now, in the Old Testament, he gave the law so that people would know what's required, and he warned them of the consequences if they went their own way and followed others' God. He punished their disobedience so that they would understand, see it happen, so that they would know he spoke the truth, and so that they would turn to him. But ultimately, he gave them a choice. In Deuteronomy, he said to the children of Israel before they entered the promised land, see, I have put before you the way of life and death. He'd given them the law in essence saying, this is the way to life. And he said to them, therefore, choose life. You see, the choice was them. They could choose to follow God's laws or not. And as we know, too often, it was the not. In the New Testament, Jesus taught the people from Scripture and demonstrated God's power through his healing and casting out demons. He forgave sins and pointed the way to new life as God's children. He invited, he invited, but he never coerced. He gave each person the freedom to choose. And then we come to the rest of the New Testament, which is made up of the letters of uh, mostly Paul, but a few written by John and 
perhaps one or two others, that really tell us how God wants us to live as his children in this world. And one of the most interesting and shortest of these letters is a letter that wrote, Paul wrote to a man named Philemon. Now, Philemon was a Christian and uh, the head of, uh, seemingly, uh, he was well-to-do because he had servants and slaves. And at this, the time that Paul wrote this, he was an old man. He knew Philemon personally. Philemon knew him personally. And while Paul was in prison in Rome, that's where he was when he wrote this letter, he came into contact with a man named Onesimus, who was a slave of Philemon who had run away. He'd escaped. Somehow he landed up in Rome, came into contact with Paul, and had become a Christian. And Paul writes eloquently of how much he loved this young man, Onesimus, and how much he would really like to keep him with him. He said, I find him useful. He serves me well. I'd re I'm here in prison. I would really, really like to keep him with me. But he recognized that legally, and even morally, Philemon owned the rights to Onesimus. And listen to what he says after he's, he's, he's told Philemon all this, and he says, for this reason, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do your duty, yet I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. Paul really wanted to have that slave Onesimus with him. And yet he pointed Philemon to the love of Christ as it was demonstrated within the body of Christ. He named people that they both knew. Okay. Because of this, he said, I'm bold enough in Christ, or though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you, Yet, I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. And so he did, very eloquently. He said, please, allow Onesimus to stay with me. If he owes you anything, I'll pay it. I know you, I know he belongs to you. But please, let him stay with me. But he left the choice to Philemon. Now, we don't really know what happened. Scripture doesn't tell us. I like to think that Philemon, in love for God and what God had done for him, allowed Onesimus to stay with Paul, that he forgave the debt because of what God had forgiven him, but we don't know. And so Paul sets this example for us in this letter. And it's not the only place. There are other places in the, in the epistles where he's talking about how we are to treat one another as Christians, 
how we are to behave, how we are to interact within the body of Christ. That is the church. That's us, folks. This is where we're to practice what it means to love other people as God loves us. So when we become followers of Jesus, he calls us to love as he loves, to love God supremely and to love others as ourselves. And he's made this a possibility through his death and resurrection and by sending the Holy Spirit to live within his living presence in us. And I would just say here that there is no way that we can truly love as as God has loved us unless we experience that love in in our hearts, in the very center of our beings. If God's love is not poured out into our lives, if the message does not get from here to here, we can only mimic God's love. We cannot live it out from a center that knows and has experienced God's love. But God's made this possible because he sent the Holy Spirit to live within us. And if we would live as God's children in our broken world, which is what he calls us to do, we must somehow learn how to love as he loves, with the tenderness of a mother with her young child, with compassion and understanding as a father with his children, with the willingness to give up our own desires, even our rights, for the sake of others, as Christ did. Remember the church in the Dublin airport? Well, I found this on uh, their website as I was looking for information on the church. In celebrating the 50th anniversary of the church's opening, Dermot Martin, Archbishop of Dublin, said this, Christians who believe in a God of love are called to be in the forefront in their communities in fostering relationships of care and solidarity, and especially in rejecting the climate of violence, which all too often in recent times has mired our city. In his case, this was some eight years ago, The day before he spoke, a six-year-old child had been shot. Happens all too frequently in our country, doesn't it? We could say this almost any day. And God calls us to reject the climate of violence that grows up, and we have seen it with our own eyes, grow to frightening proportions in our own country. And if you listen to that statement and were a little put off by the words solidarity, which maybe have political overtones for some of us, don't be put off by, by it. As I understand the word, it simply means, I'm with you. I care about what's happening to you. 
I want the best for you. This is what we should be saying as Christians, as individuals, and as the church, the body of Christ here. And so in closing, I would like to present these challenges to you. How do I respond to a God who draws me to himself by cords of love? Now, I don't know where you are personally in your relationship with God. Many of you, some of you, I do, because you've told us, or I know you personally, but many of you I don't. It may be there are some here who have been holding back on a personal relationship with God and entrusting themselves to this God that we speak about because of past hurts, disappointments, misunderstandings, whatever. And I would challenge, not just challenge, but invite you this morning to see that see God as one who loves you beyond anything you can begin to imagine. And you can safely entrust your heart to him. Not just your heart, but your life. And if I already know him, if I'm already walking in his ways, if I've already committed my life to him, how am I living out that life? How can I reflect this kind of love in my actions, in my attitudes, in my relationships? At home, first of all, perhaps one of the hardest places we have to live up this kind of love. And I see some smiles. We understand that, don't we? (laughs) We do. What about in my church? As I've already said, the church the very body of Christ, this particular body of believers that God has given us. He's given us each other so that together we can grow up into him. This is our practice field, if you will. We practice loving each other in the church. How about in my community and beyond? What would God have us do? What would he have us be? How specifically does he want us to be a reflection of his love and grace in the world beyond our doors? Now, some 50, almost 60 years ago, this congregation in Dublin found at least one way They would proclaim in cement, (laughs) God is love. But that's just a starting place, isn't it? Whatever it is that God leads us to do, let us do it wholeheartedly, out of hearts that love him, and act towards our fellow man and towards those who need him, from a heart of love, a heart that reflects God's grace, his mercy, that he has extended so freely to us. 
This is a big question that we at Community Chapel collectively are praying about right now, isn't it? What type of ministry? How, how is God shaping our ministry for the days and months and years ahead? I hope you're praying along with us and listening to what God would say to you.